GK Chesterton is my name when I go to the club and I have to conceal my identity. <laughs> I feel like the uh, Mr. Moneybags from Monopoly and GK Chesterton. <laughs> yeah, our buds. <laughs> like, they're yeah, like they, hanging out. They love hitting the club. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Hey, Doogles, did you hear what Kathy Wood said this week? I I think you know I hear everything that Kathy Wood says, and but I'm I'm trying to be disciplined about it, and so I shout out I shout about it in my own home and try not to bring it onto the pod because I got yelled at by you and our listeners that I brought it up too much. So no, yes. we got to talk about this. Okay. We got to, I don't you gotta, so know. You got to talk about this. I don't you know if I can do it with a straight face. She said, she's talking uh, treasury yields and interest rates here. And she says under Volcker, Volcker, the increase in treasury yields was 1.6 X from 10% to 16% compared to 7.4 X from 0.5 to 3.7 under pal and team she goes on talks about a bunch more stuff okay <laughs> so i can't even do it with a straight <laughs> face <laughs> so then <laughs> my friend person i respect who's who calls everyone out on twitter clifford asness uh he writes nobody in all of economics banking and finance thinks this is a multiplicative multiplicative relationship I guess a move from zero rates to positive rates was infinity. Jeez. Like, why do... <laughs> she is out of her element. Like, I do not... You heard me say this before that I think that she's the Kanye of of investing here. Because she just... Except I don't think she does it on purpose. I feel like Ye... Sorry, I didn't mean to... I feel like Ye like, has a team that comes up with like his nonsense that'll be... Uh, That'll be it's viral. like the Dan Price guy who doesn't write any of his tweets or LinkedIn posts. Yeah. Oh, this is so much nonsense. Uh, and for those following along at home, so Volcker, you mentioned Paul Volcker was the chair of the Fed back in the late 70s, early 80s. And he's the one that like fully jacked up rates in order to get rid of inflation. It sent us into a, a big recession back then. She's comparing what Paul Volcker did then to what Powell did now when that there's there's so there's just like so there's so much that's different i don't even know where to start part of it is the whole multiplicative piece that that cliff was talking about there where 10 percent to 16 percent is not the same as like zero percent to anything that is it's a fundamental different paradigm i'm using well, the, i'm using the proper terminology there paradigm because of how serious this is no, we talk uh, real estate a lot on the show because real estate's fascinating and it's a microcosm. And we have great listener mail this week on the difference between the real estate bubble in 08-09 and t- to today. So shout out to Jared for sending that our way. I think we'll get to it in a little bit. But it's really easy if you talk about real estate, if someone's getting a mortgage at maybe 6% because the Fed funds rate is in the high threes versus someone getting a mortgage at 18% because the Fed funds rate is 16%. And saying the amount of the raise compared to the previous rate like somehow matters is just hogwash. It doesn't it doesn't matter at all. It's like 
someone paying 18% on their mortgage is obviously onerous and we know why. It doesn't matter. The, the fact that they could have been playing 12% on their mortgage, pre, like it's just nonsensical. I don't even know how you write this. I don't know how you write this. <laughs> I, I don't know how she hasn't lost her full audience. Although, to a certain extent, I don't know if you saw recent uh, headlines this week that were summarizing the amount of money that people have made on shorting her ETFs. Oh, I, I'm in that camp, man. Remember, I bought Sark and I, uh, I was just riding that. I could not believe how much money I was making, but I only had a, a hundred bucks in there. Highly profitable. I mean, it was one thing a year ago when we were talking about Sark coming out and saying, Betting against a single portfolio manager just kind of seems, you know, having an ETF that does that, just like, I don't know, does that happen pretty frequently? But now this year I'm seeing there's like a whole marketplace of short bets against a single portfolio manager to the extent it's it's like it's to the extent where if if Kathy Wood were a, if she had like a steady like ETF structure, then I'd go, this is some serious pessimism. That should we like maybe take a look at a contrarian bet? But the fact that every 16 minutes she changes her mind based on some nonsense on what she wants to buy or sell, it, like you can't, I can't bet on that human. It, I can't. I, I mean, I wanted to tie back in a way. I think her point here, which don't. I don't know. I, th I think she's don't. trying to say that what Jerome Powell and team did in the last six months is like, five times worse than what Volcker did when he brought rates to 16%? No. <laughs> it's a binary. It's different. This no. is a binary. Powell and team said, we're going to move from the world of 0% interest rates to a world of interest rates. It, like, the binary is what they did. The, you can't look at the, the multiplication that exists there. I, well, can't, I just can't with her. I can't yeah, with her. I can't either. I know when I first when I bought my first home in 2006 ish, our mortgage was six uh, percent, and I did an analysis at that time. So this is from memory; it's probably wrong, but at that time, a six percent mortgage was like in the the ten percent lowest rates if you looked at the past fifty years or something. Like it was a historically great rate. Is my point? We're back to mortgage rates in the six to seven percent range. That's still historically a great pay, uh, great rate. You just got to zoom out. You just got to say the last decade was an anomaly. Go back and look at mortgage rates for the last 80 years and tell me that it's comparable to what Volcker did in 1982. It's just, it's just not. The difference there, I mean, we talked about this before. The, let me separate this out from Kathy Wood. But the, the difference from 16 years ago now is that home prices are so high and mortgage rates are at that level. So like to buy a home, you sent you sent over what I thought was a really good New York Times piece this week about the starter home and how it no longer exists, but not because the supply market, like home builders, it's not because they don't want to build them. It's because at least according to this piece, it's because of partially uh, regulation has made it such that it's too expensive to build a home and they couldn't sell it for, they can't sell it for the starter home price, even when they build them. But anyway, I think that, that that's like what feels different today. But on the Kathy Wood side, yeah, it's, I got to move on. I got to move on. Uh, no, we can move on, but let's just tie up a loose end because there's a lot of housing to talk about. We, we, I gave a similar stat, but 
Redfin came out with a report this week um, where they plot mortgage payments for the average price of a home and the average uh, interest rate. And man, you just got to see the 2022 line. It's a whole factor above anything that happened in 2021 and 2020. And basically mortgage rates are up 45.5% because rates have gone up and house prices haven't come down. It's absolute craziness. But it's very likely that housing prices start to come down because it's simply unsustainable. Um, so there's a bunch of articles on that. I don't know that we'll do a deep dive, but it, get ready because it's going to start to get juicy. And then people are going to write all these crazy articles freaking out about house prices going down when maybe it's just, to use my favorite term, it's just mean reversion. Like people simply can't afford to have their mortgage rates increased by 50% because their salaries certainly did not keep up. Fishbowl time. Fishbowl, go for it. Fishbowl time. All right, I'm going to reach into the fishbowl. And speaking of things going down, there's this blog post by Mark Suster, who's a, a partner at Upfront Ventures down in LA. Uh, it's about the uh, VC market, venture capital market, because that's what Upfront does. That's who Mark Suster is. But this one is looking at what happens post-crash to the VC market. So I think it's interesting. We don't we don't talk about venture. We we mention venture capital a decent amount, but don't go into it as frequently. So I just want to bring this up. A couple quick hits. I love this point that Mark Suster brings up. It's a question and then an answer from him. He says, should SaaS companies, so software as a service companies, just think about that as software companies, trade at a 24x enterprise value to next 12 month revenue multiple? <clears throat> Sorry. Should SaaS companies trade at 24x enterprise value to next 12 month revenue multiple? So we were talking about price to sales, right? Yeah. Effectively, he's saying, does, that's, uh, is 24x, is that right? Yeah, that's just like they did price in, to sales. in yeah. November 2021. Is that what the price should be? Probably not, is his answer. And we think 10x, which is what it was in May 2022, seems more in line with historical trend. And that also might be too high. So he just like set that stage first to say, last year, we were looking at 24 times, right, um, is what, what the average seemed to be in the venture capital market. And now he thinks we're getting down to 10x is probably somewhere we might land, but that might even be a little bit high. So he sets that up. And with that context, so then what happens? What does this look like? And one of the areas that, that he points out is he says, we're not taking any meetings with companies who raised their last growth round in 2021 because we know that there's still a mismatch of their expectations. So what he's saying there is those folks that are that viewed the mean, right? To use your mean reversion, there are founders that viewed the mean as what happened in 2021, which was actually like really, really high. Bill Gurley mentioned something about this in a tweet, right? A few weeks ago too, uh, of disillusionment that founders can have then. So he said, we'll just wait until companies that raised in 2019 or 2020 come to the market. We're willing to be patient, right? For those founders to come in, which I just think, I think it was interesting combined with that piece. The so others... I want to jump in right there. Okay, do it. So do Bill Gurley did an interview with McKinsey this week. And he said two really interesting things. One is he said he thinks this might be the best time to start a company in the last 15 years. What he's meaning is the cycle's down, there's pessimism in the markets, and those are historically the best times to start a company. I'm happy that I just started a company, so we'll, we'll see how this works out for me. But then the interviewer, he's talking about the personal shock of having someone raise at the peak 
and mentally banking this wealth and then watching the paper wealth disappear. So here's the exact quote. The interview goes, so how does that personal shock uh, of going from being worth 150 million to being worth 50 million? And Bill Gurley says, or 15 million. He's saying that this company might be worth 90% less than it was in 2001. I Sorry to jump in, but that goes exactly to your point. And he's a realist in Silicon Valley, right? He's honestly implying that some of these companies are worth 90% less than they used to be. Yes, which we're seeing in the public markets. So it's not that it's it's not wild. It's not wild for me to say that. And he's seen some cycles per what you're saying. I mean, he's been in this industry for about 30 years. The the other thing that I'll point to, which gets back to the good time to start a company potentially, is in Mark Suster's piece, he has this graph of VC capital overhang. The way to think about overhang is just capital that's sitting on the sidelines that hasn't been invested yet. So that is currently, by the estimates here, that's currently at about $290 billion that's sitting on the sidelines that VC firms have raised. If you compare that to a decade ago, 2012, it was $72 billion. So we're more than 4x the amount of capital that VC firms are just having to deploy that are sitting right now. To your early point, well, I also want to jump in there. I listened to the All In Pod this week, and David Sachs talks specifically about the statistic. And it's his belief that a lot of that capital is already deployed. And there's some reporting challenges here. I just wanted to throw that in because it surprised me. But regardless, it's a fascinating stat. And it's really an, a really interesting thought experiment. If there is that much capital out there and valuations in some cases have come down by 90%, like, Holy cow, there could be some deals to be had. It's a lot because you have. So what you know, by you, I mean one, what the world knows is that this capital will be deployed. So whether it's, I don't know what uh, what Sachs thinks it is, but whether it's $290 billion, $200 billion, $150 yeah. billion, yep. it's still two, three, four X, somewhere in that range of what it was about a decade ago. And you know it will be deployed because that's what VC firms have to do. Like you, you, yep. you are going to invest it. And so- in a market like this, there are two things that happen. One is the check sizes will get smaller. And the second, which is related, is that valuations are down. Now, those two things go hand in hand because if if you're now a 15 million, well, you, you didn't say a 15 million uh, valuation company, but I'm just use the same stats. Yeah. If yeah. you are a 15 million valuation company and a check that was being written was $15 million, that's no longer going to be the case because you're not buying the whole company as a VC firm, yep. right? Yep. And so check sizes are going down. With capital being this much, that just means more businesses will likely be invested in. And so you have a higher likelihood of getting funded, but at a lower valuation right now, if you follow that that logic. It's an oversimplification, but I think a helpful way to think about it. Yeah, and, and I think that's potentially good for everybody. It means the VC firm's going to take more shots, and it's a, a long probability anyway. And more companies get a, a chance to build with that they're just going to have to build in a much more capital efficient way so now i'm going to throw out a few numbers here so try and follow along because this gets it can be hard to like listen to this many numbers suster lays out what he's calling like the funnel right of deals and how that plays out with a with a funds return and so typically to set up some context the way that venture capital firms make money 
is they try and have a, a multiple of whatever they raised in a fund. So if you raise $100 million, you want that fund to return $400 million, right? Mm -hmm. Where that return comes from is a small percentage of the total investments that you make. So many of them fail. Some of them might return back the money that you put in. But then the small number are not just 4x, but 10, 20x, whatever you end up putting in. And so that's where the fund's return comes from. Okay, so what he's saying is, if we do 36 to 40 deals in a seed fund, somewhere between 25 to 40% would likely see big up rounds in the first 12 to 24 months. So what he's saying there is they might write a check and then the next round, so that their next funding round that, that company has in the next year or two is going to be maybe two or three X, whatever they, um, they ended up investing in it. So it's like a big up round that comes from that, right? So about 12 to 15 of their investments of that 36 to 40, will raise more money and they'll be worth a whole bunch more quickly. That's not long-term, right? Because mm -hmm. when you're usually holding on to a company for, it's called seven years, right, as a VC. Of the companies that became well-financed, so that 12 to 15, we only need 15 to 25% to pan out to return two to three X the fund. But this is all driven on the assumption that we didn't write, this is so important, this is all driven on the assumption that we didn't write a $20 million check out of the gate and that we didn't pay $100 million pre-money valuation. So what they're saying here, what he's saying is that in this world that existed up until November of last year, the size of checks and valuations both had increased so much that in order to get into the game, you might be writing a $20 million check right, at over $100 million valuation, so you get 20% of the company. And he's saying, we're betting that we didn't do that. Like You had to have not done that in this mm -hmm. world to now be able to make money. And the last the last paragraph um, that he writes in this post is like all skippity do that all day. I love this. I read this paragraph and just thought about you because he's saying that a lot of the value that they're seeing being created and their fund right now is not from those companies that had the big up rounds really quickly. It's from the businesses that weren't immediately up into the right. They took on less capital and have just kind of been chugging away in the background creating long-term value. And so those are the ones that he's seeing in his portfolio that are like, that are doing better right now, or at least maybe I shouldn't say better. They're creating a good amount of outsized value right now yeah. versus the companies that were immediately like up into the right and raising large rounds and now are potentially going to have to raise down rounds, which means you raise money at a lower valuation mm -hmm. and there's a lot more dilution that comes from it. Hope you could follow along with all those numbers. There's a lot of a lot of ticky -tacky. No, it's good. There's one thing I want to make sure I, I fully understood. Um, when you talked about his assumption saying we didn't, the only way we make decent returns is if we didn't go crazy in November. It, I just want to say that a different way and make sure I, I fully got it. So he's, we, you stated the assumptions that they're going to be writing smaller checks in the future, right? And so I'm going to use some course analogies here. But if they wrote a check in October 2021 for $20 million to one company and they got caught at the top of that bubble. And then all of a sudden in uh, the next 12 months, they write a bunch of $2 million checks. The $20 million check that is likely going to fail because they overpaid for it is going to pull down the returns of all the smart bets they make over the next 12 to 24 months. And effectively, it's going to come out in the wash. And that one or two poor decisions with a much bigger check size Heard everything else. Is that yep. what he's getting yep. to? Yep. Okay. That's exactly right. It gets to, we talk about Taleb 
on here a bunch, the author of The Black Swan, I guess it's something he talked about. Uh, when he was saying that people often look at the frequency at which something occurs, but don't look at the magnitude along with the frequency. And that's what you're saying is that you can you can write a bunch of the small two million dollar checks, but that big twenty million dollar or two twenty million dollar checks, the magnitude of those is so much that you need it's a 10x right of the two million. So you need you can't have those fail if you want everything else to be able to succeed. So the magnitude is is equally as important as the or more important many times as the frequency. Perfect. Um, can we shift gears? Let's do it. All right. So Charlie Bellello, I hope I'm saying that right, broke down the AAII survey this week. And that, that stands for American Association of Institutional Investors. Basically, they send out a weekly survey and they do a breakdown on the market sentiment, basically, of individual investors. This week was the lowest point since 2009, and the previous low uh, for that was in October 1990. I'm not calling a bottom here. I think there's plenty of room to run on the negative side. But if you look at the last um, 30 plus years here, the three lowest events happened at the bottom, March of 2009, and at the bottom of October of 1990. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I, I'm not feeling that much negative sentiment out there. I'm feeling some people freaking out. But uh, clearly, your average person is having a pretty tough go right now. It's, uh, I mean, that, I think you're starting to see a lot of that in the news now. You see more and more pessimism than we saw two months ago, even. This is surprising to me as well. Like, comparing it to, to that time, in... 2008-ish, right? The 2007 to 2009 period, it was like the world might end. The country yeah. might run out of money. There are like, it was, that was such a wild time that to me, this feels like um, more of a, it, it could be where it is because of comparison because there was so much joy and elation. And Kathy Wood was talking about how things were going to go up 40x or whatever in the next five years and or four yep. no 40 percent compounding returns in the next five years or something like that uh you know just less than a year ago and so going from that to the inflation that we're seeing interest rates going up 7.4 times whatever <laughs> kathy Wood was also saying right um is it might just be like that the juxtaposition of those two things maybe is creating the sentiment i don't know but i was surprised by the graph but i am seeing a lot of negativity out there yeah, I mean, and to be fair, so they take the percentage of people that are optimistic and subtract it from the percentage of people who are pessimistic, and then they come up with the stat. So right now we're at negative 43%. In like early 2009, we were negative 51%. So we're not quite the same magnitude down. And like I said, I, I kind of expect this to continue down. But absolutely fascinating to think yeah, that that this seems to be similar to a Lehman Brothers type event, because I just don't think we're there yet. I don't think it's nearly <laughs> that bleak. But um, the UK bond market, if anyone followed the stock market this week, they'll know there's some crazy ups. I think it was Wednesday. That's because the UK announced that they'd start buying bonds. And I read a really fascinating piece in the FT, um, the Financial Times. And talked about the with the UK deciding to raise rates that the the bond market almost collapsed and there was no buyers 
<laughs> for uh, United Kingdom government bonds. It's a whole different issue that we're not going to get into in detail here. But that is when people start to throw Lehman Brothers around, when the, when markets just seem to fail. Like it, it doesn't seem like there's demand uh, for a certain swing. And so the government had to step in and that's what people reacted to. So, so maybe some of this is well-founded in terms of we're at the cracking point of potential catastrophic events like that. I mean, the, the market hasn't, it has rarely ever gone down this far this quickly. Very true. So, yeah. I, I have stats on that, but not in front of me. Uh, this is one of the worst three quarters of the year. I, Gosh, I I better pull that up since like the 20s, right? It's something like that. I think the 30s. Yeah, I think the 1930s. It's it's it, this is so fascinating to me this market because to your point, I know I've said this before, but to the point you were stating, it's like not that it doesn't seem that bad like yet. But yeah. then there's so many stocks that people loved that are down real far. And so in some corners of the market Maybe the people that get surveyed here, their corners of the market, it's yep. not looking so good. I think that's it. And um, I thought about doing this episode. If there's appetite, we might do it next. Uh, I mean, it might be nice to reset, guys, and just talk about, the, again, get a longer time horizon and talk about how freak, how much more common it is for the S&P 500 to go up on a yearly basis than it is to go down. We could pull all those stats for you, and we could just do 20 minutes on it if that'd be helpful. This is a time of fear, but historically, time is on your side, and uh, it makes sense to own equities. So hit us up if that's of interest to you. We could certainly reset the psyche here. Yeah. And one, we, we sometimes will talk about like uh, what the price of something is relative to historical date for that, which has like a psychological potential value, but doesn't really mean anything in and of itself. But for the market right now, I think it can be helpful for folks to note, because maybe you can take yourself back in time a little bit. Yeah. That for the market right now is in like, I think Q4 of 2020 ish, like somewhere like that. And so effectively, I'm going to round a little bit. Effectively, if you just transport yourself back, what we're saying is that we've taken out the returns of 2021. Mm -hmm. That's where we are. Which it, I mean, and that's not that bad in the grand scheme of things. No. You and I and on the pod in 2021 were saying, this is kind of crazy and we can't justify this. So Yeah, and the market's saying, we we can't. You're right. Like, we, yeah. we can't justify <laughs> this, so let's take that year out. Yeah. That, just, that's just, where we are. Everyone forget about 2021. Yeah. Deal. <laughs> Done. 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 Solidified. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, market crashes go back years. Like you're talking, you're wiping like five, six years or whatever off the uh -huh. um, generally in a market crash. So we'll see whether or not that's what this is. But that's where we are roughly Q4 2020. Can I Let's, dip into some yeah. brilliance? All right. So for those of you that don't like to read investor memos, I'm going to summarize one for you. And that's nearly all of you, by the way. I'm pretty sure. Howard Marks can put pen to paper in such a phenomenal way. And uh, I'm glad you turned me on to Howard Marks. Actually, I'm very thankful for that. And I just really enjoy reading his memos. So this one from September uh, 2022 is titled Illusion of Knowledge. And this is like, I think you probably called Mr. Marks and told him to write this. 
because of how much you don't like forecasting. This whole piece is about forecasts and nonsense. But I'm going to end this. I'm going to give some summary hits from this. And then I'm going to end it with a question for you. A contrarian, controversial question for you. It might even be a question with a period at the end. Here are a few quotes. Forecasters have no choice but to base their judgments on models, be they complex or informal, mathematical or intuitive. Models, by definition, consist of assumptions. If A happens, then B will happen. In other words, relationships and responses, right? So what, what he's saying is, if you're a forecaster, you need something to say what you should forecast. They build these models. Bottles have a bunch of assumptions. Say, if this happens, that happens. What that then leads to is you have a whole suite of assumptions that are basically multiplicative. Like you need all six of these things to occur. If one of them is different, then your forecast kind of goes off. And it's impossible really to know whether or not A, B, C, and D are all going to happen. One of my favorite quotes is um, when someone presents a forecast to you, you say, what assumptions in your model are required to make that happen? And often, the, this happens in boardrooms for me, right? Often, the person starts talking through their assumptions. And not only do you realize that there's a lot of rosy stuff in there, but you also realize that, like you're saying, it goes six deep. And then you you reframe and you ask yourself the question, like, what is the likelihood that all six of those things happen? And you quickly realize that forecast is junk. It's just how it works. It's just how it works. Fair. Fair enough. All right, here's another one. How can a model of an economy be comprehensive enough to deal with things that haven't been seen before or haven't been seen in modern times, meaning under comparable circumstances? This is yet another example of why models simply can't replicate something as complex as an economy. I I really love that point around how do you deal with things that haven't been seen before or haven't been seen in like in this environment? Like I, I really like that one a lot. We just talked about it last week. The the quote, the the guy being like, we've never raised interest rates 75 basis points a time into a recession. You know, like yep. we've never been here before. So how does your model handle this? It can't. Yep. All right. I've got four more and then then I'm gonna I'm gonna spit out my my nonsense. All right. I imagine that for most money managers, the process goes like this. I predict the economy will do A. If A happens, interest rates should do B. With interest rates of B, the stock market should do C. Under that environment, the best performing sector should be D, and stock E should rise the most. The portfolio expected to do best under that scenario is then assembled. <laughs> like when you read it that plainly, then go, oh, okay, that's I'm not investing in that. Um, all right, the next one. Uh, and so th this one, he's actually quoting somebody else, someone, an English writer named G.K. Chesterton. And this is from Chesterton's piece that he used, or sorry, a Chesterton quote that he used in a previous memo called Risk Revisited Again. The real trouble with this world of ours is not that it's an unreasonable world, nor even that it's a reasonable one. The commonest kind of trouble is that it is nearly reasonable, but not quite. <laughs> that I love so much. I'll give you my my like reframe of that is that the the model, if you look at this in model terms, and your model is fully logical, let's just say, like it follows this logical trend. And he's saying the problem isn't that that the world says that logic isn't right. And it's not that the world says that logic's right. It says that it's like basically right, but it's 10% off right there. And yeah. if you're 10% off there, then everything 
like anything else could happen because of the randomness that exists in the world. I just, I really love that, that, that part. It's not that it's unreasonable. But it's not that it's reasonable. It's that it's nearly reasonable. <laughs> and like, I think that that is, that is the problem. Yeah. I just got to jump in there uh, with a really important point. Uh, GK Chesterton is my name when I go to the club and I have to conceal my identity. <laughs> I I feel like the uh, Mr. Moneybags from Monopoly and GK Chesterton. <laughs> yeah, are buds. <laughs> like, they're yeah, like they, hanging out. They love hitting the club. <laughs> GK Chester GK Chesterton is an all timer. That is a great name. It's Holy phenomenal. cow! It's phenomenal. I'll read anything that you write if that's your name. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I'm buying some books today by Mr. Chesterton. <laughs> all right. I actually have one more. I thought I thought it was two more. One more. As I mentioned in my recent memo, thinking about macro, in the 1970s, we used to describe an economist as, quote, a portfolio manager who never marks to market. <laughs> this is so good. <laughs> in other words, economists make forecasts. Events prove them either right or wrong. They go on to make new forecasts, but they don't keep track of how often they get they get it right. It's like, yeah. it's, it's so, so good. Um, I love that fact. So, all right. What he's saying here through all this. Forecasts rarely come true, and if they do, it's by chance, right? Forecasting can be dangerous because people bet so much on them. Now, Skippy, are you ready for this? Yes. Aren't we all forecasting, though? I think what's being said here is that it's the precision of a forecast that is nonsensical. Not that you're forecasting. Because even when you talk about mean reversion, you're forecasting that the economy of the United States doesn't fall apart. Like you're forecasting that this company doesn't go bankrupt. You're forecasting. And, but like, that's a, it's a directional forecast versus a precise forecast. And I don't feel like that's talked about that. Like we all are forecasting. Howard Marks buys a lot of distressed debt. And that's a lot of where the investing comes from. There's a forecast that's being made when that, when that debt is purchased, it's just not like a, here are my six assumptions that have to all come true perfectly. And this is the price necessarily fully there, but there's, there's some directional forecast. I'll pause. I mean, I love the thought process and generally agree, but Howard Marks, me, hopefully others are making probabilistic bets based on current valuations, right? And beliefs in the future. It, sure. But the forecast that he's, uh, crapping on here, if I'm allowed to say that on the pod, is the economist that says interest rates are going to be X at the end of 2022, or the value of the S&P 500 is going to be X at this period in time. Or that, remember that we joked about the Dow's 36,000 book that came out 20 years ago. Like It's that level of precision to, to say... We even mentioned it last week. I said, I'm really excited about some stock picks of mine. But the thing that's tough is when my normal turnaround might take 18, 12, 18 months to get to what I think is true value in this environment, I think it's going to take three years. And that's kind of a pain. I don't control that time horizon at all. I don't control, control when things mean revert. So I guess I don't think of that specifically as a forecast. And I don't think Mr. Marks does either. But I know what you're saying, and it's very true. There's, it's, that's what's so hard about investing, and especially 
investing recommendations and advice. It comes across as contradictory because it's like, no one can know the future except you should buy this stock at this point in time because it's going to be worth more money in the future. But that's a forecast. Yeah, true. I know. I know. Maybe it's just a messiness of language. Like, and I'm not, I'm not actually trying to argue semantics here. It's just more that I, I think it'd be really helpful to mention some version of that fact that it's specifically, I think you said it really, really well. It's the specific type of forecast that Howard Marks is talking about and that you talk about, right? But when uh, when I like read this, it's just like forecasting is stupid. No, well, like you have to have some belief in the future that you are betting on mm-hmm. if you are investing. And so maybe it would be helpful for some like I'm just thinking of it as directional forecasting or something like writing about how should you structure your future belief system and how shouldn't you structure your future belief system? When you say it that way, I'm going to push back stronger. When Howard Marks buys distressed debt, he says, I'm buying this thing at 10 bucks. There's a 50% chance it's worth a hundred bucks. There's a 30% chance it's worth 15 bucks. And there's a 20% chance it's worth two bucks. He does the math on that. And and I'm simplifying here. It's not exactly like this, but he does the math on that. And he says, the the expected value of this at some point in the future is higher than the ten dollars I'm paying for it. What he he doesn't say it's going to a hundred bucks. He doesn't say it's going to two bucks. He says I'm willing to take this bet, and I'm going to take enough of these bets with probabilistic outcomes that are in my favor that I'm going to make tons of money. He's done that historically. He's worth billions of dollars, if I remember correctly. I think he's worth like three billion bucks. So. I don't think of that as a forecast. I think of that as Mm -hmm. like, go back to the poker table, Dougals. You're a poker guy. You're making a smart bet, but you're not necessarily saying, you're saying the odds are in my favor. You're not necessarily saying this exact thing is going to happen. He just is making bets when the odds are in his favor. And then he, he sits around as long as it takes for that to come true. And when it comes true, it's not a forecast. It's just that he was smart about how he did his analysis. I don't know if it's worth continuing down this rabbit hole, but we, we can because I I hear what you're saying and I agree with that. I I think I I do see that as a forecast. Like that's okay, my that's fair. He sees there's a 63 percent chance that this will be true in the future. Yeah. This being higher than today. It's a really good point, yeah. and and some of it might be a little semantics like, but I I totally hear you, and I think there's some contradictory mm-hmm. stuff that happens when you talk investing and um, separating the macro forecast from the. Ec- economist who uh, doesn't keep a track record on their wins and losses and maybe loses 90 percent of the times in their historical forecast is different than doing that with a portfolio manager like howard marks who has an incredible track record yeah yeah and that and the everything he wrote so this is this 15 page memo like yes 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 believe that i it, uh, it takes me back to what buffett always talks about too is like bet on america and i think that's where my brain starts to go it's like when the for me personally so if the stock market goes down another 50% and I deploy, not at that exact moment, right? But like during that process, my belief, like my forecast is that America will continue to be a strong and dominant economy. Maybe it doesn't have to be number one, whatever, but a strong and dominant economy in the future. And I think that there's something important in having even, I don't want to call it macro because I'm not talking about like macroeconomics, but like high level guideline like some paradigm this is a paradigm not a paradigm because this is positive 
some paradigm that you're operating within about the future that like the stock market will exist. I will get returns back, right? I, the financial system won't fall apart. So anyway, we don't, we don't have to continue down that road. Cause we can talk about yeah, it. I'll but, pull something out of the fishbowl. That's like somewhat similar. Okay, I think it's cool. uh, relevant. Cool, cool. So, you know, Annie Duke, right? Oh yeah. Okay. Annie Duke, former professional poker player and author, uh, super smart. She wrote a new book called quit. I haven't read this book yet, but I will. And the breakdown in the Wall Street Journal was really fascinating. She got this idea when she was a professional poker player and watched the true professionals uh, fold much more frequently than the amateurs. And I believe the stats there is a true professional folds about 75% of the time. And at, yeah, pros play fewer than 25% of the hands after other cards hit the table and amateurs play more than 50%, right? So to be a great professional poker player, this is where I said it builds on the marks conversation. It's about probabilistic outcomes and the pros play less hands because if the odds aren't in their favor, they just, they're not even going to waste their money, right? Where she goes with this is an example of Stuart Butterfield. Yeah, Stuart Butterfield. Who founded Flickr, sold it to Yahoo, and Slack, and sold it to Salesforce. He sold Slack to Salesforce recently for almost $28 billion. Neither of those companies were what he tried to found. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Am I saying that right? Yes. He founded gaming companies. He founded video gaming companies. He realized at some point that he didn't have the ability, his probabilistic outcomes for success of his original idea were long shots. He stopped. He, in certain cases, in the second one that ended up being slack, he uh, gave money back to his investors. He had already raised, like it was a success story, but it was nowhere near the success story that slack ended up being when he pivoted. So it's just fascinating. I can't wait to read it. And I think there's some really good takeaways here in terms of thinking about life more the way you would think about your investments in terms of how you actually spend your time. I love the the two stories that you just put out there. So pardon my jumping in here, but to talk about them a little bit, because I just think I think they're really fascinating. And I don't remember the name of the the original game that was started before Flickr. But Stuart Butterfield, Katarina Fake, and there might have been one other person, I can't remember, uh, founded this organization. They had the game, and there was a part of the game where people could uh, like post pictures. It was like a little picture community. And what they saw was that the engagement in that part of the game was so much higher than the actual gameplay. Like People were just going in to look at pictures, so that's where that first pivot came from. And then in, I'm going to make up the year, but it was around like 2009, 2010 something like that. Glitch was the second game. I was a beta user of Glitch. It was a pretty cool game, actually. But where this one came from, as you mentioned, they'd already raised money, right? People, nerds like me, like liked the game. Mm-hmm. But with this one, they built a, there's something called uh, IRC. I think it's Internet Relay Chat is what it's um, it's called, which is like the bare bones fundamental infrastructure on which you can communicate, like using on the server side of the internet. 
And in order for them to communicate and collaborate as a company, they built uh, an interface on top of IRC, right? Like their own proprietary interface and went, the game's I, this is really good. And that's when they returned the money for investors if they wanted it yep. and then pivoted. I just think there's cool. I think it's really cool. And I also love the fact, I always say, Stuart, I don't say this to Stuart. I say it in my home and Stuart doesn't know. I say, Stuart, stop trying to found gaming companies. And then a second later, I go, maybe you should start more gaming companies. <laughs> like maybe that's the, it's because for some reason, he seems to be, he plus, you know, other co-founders seem to be particularly good at creating games that have features that are better than the games. And if the, yeah. if the game is the way for you to do that, like more power to you. But I still yeah. think that it's uh, pretty cool there. Uh, this is your point last week where it's like, you know, uh, read outside of your discipline and it, explore things like. Stuart, keep founding gaming company. Actually, Stuart, do whatever you want. Take your $28 billion and, <laughs> and do whatever you want. I, I'm not here to tell you what to do. But people don't do this enough. I'm not claiming that this is an easy path. Founding a company is very, very difficult. And I have so much respect for founders. Um, there's no guaranteed success. But he just seems to have an open mind in a way that most people don't. I, I think there will be more examples in the book of... I'd call it more traditional ways to quit. I mean, that could just be you hate your job and you're not doing something you're passionate about and you choose to find a way to shift towards something that, that makes you happier because you know life is short. Like, I don't know what the example is in, in your more typical American life. It's not Stuart Butterfield, but it's a fascinating book. Put it on the list if you guys are interested. Love that. I'm going to read it. I like Andy Duke stuff, so. Thank you for raising. You got more? No, that's it, man. How about you? All right. Nah, this was good. Enjoyed the combo today. Awesome, guys. We dropped a special episode just for premium subscribers um, with some things we're thinking about on the investing side. If you want to become a premium subscriber and get access to content like that, you can hit us, um, skippydougals.supercast.com. There's multiple memberships there, and that really helps the pod. We love rating and reviewing the podcast and shooting it to a friend or two if you like our antics here. And the Twitter is at Skippy Dougals. All right. Thank you, everybody.